Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Donna Stair. And I'm her husband, Alan. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to the WKRP cast. It's time to get ripped again. Donna, what is our episode? We're discussing Dr. Fever and Mr. Tide Part 2. The air date was the 7th of February, 1981, written by Steve Marshall, story editor Lisa Levin, executive story consultants Steve Marshall and Dan Gunselman. It was directed by Rod Daniel. Johnny continues to host Gotta Dance as his alter ego, Rip Tide. The gang grows concerned as the doctor battles his internal demons. He loves the money and the notoriety, but Rip is proving to be a very negative influence. Johnny takes some extreme measures to stop Rip before things get out of hand. We're halfway through this episode, and we haven't mentioned the title. The original source material for this one is a gothic novella by Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson. It was first published as A Penny Dreadful, or Shilling Shocker, in 1886 under the title The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Since then, it's also been shortened to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and just simply Jekyll and Hyde. Pulp novellas with lurid or frightening stories like this one originally sold for a penny in the United States, which is where they got the name Penny Dreadful. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde quickly became one of Stevenson's most popular works. By 1901, it was estimated a quarter million copies of the story had been sold in the U.S. alone. Stevenson finished the first draft in three days. Some historians believe his creative output was fueled by cocaine use. A stage play was produced within a year of its publication. The play opened in Boston and was so successful it quickly moved to London. The theatrical work was noted for the gruesome and frightening transition scenes, going from man to monster. Since its introduction, more than 120 stage and film versions of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde have been produced. There have also been numerous audio recordings of the original novella, a musical based on the story and, believe it or not, a video game release. Dealing with inner demons and the inability to control urges has proven to be a potent and relatable storyline. The Jekyll and Hyde story structure has been credited with influencing the creation of comic book characters such as Two-Face and the Hulk. It also seems to have influenced the creation of Riptide. All right, let's get back into this episode. Remember, we are halfway through the hour. We come back in the studio. We're starting the second half in the radio studio. Les is on the air, finishing up a news report. And on the commodities exchange, hogs again took a mysterious stumble (laughs) as soybeans and wheat made a shocking comeback. (laughs) I'll have a personal observation on that hog stumble story on my 6 p.m. report. 
This is Les Nessman saying good day and may the good news be yours. Johnny comes into the studio. He's still got that weird two-toned hair, the Rip hair. Les greets him. Hiya, Rip. Johnny reminds him, it's Johnny. Les tells Johnny he knows he was just teasing. I love to tease. (laughs) He loves to tease. Johnny tells Les he's one of the world's great kidders. Les giggles as he heads out of the studio. Johnny tells him to come back. He wants to tell him something. Johnny tells him to let him get a record going. Johnny starts the song, Da-do-do-do-da-da-da-da, by the police. Now, you remember that monster poster watch we did at the beginning of Mile in My Shoes? That's when we first saw the Zenyatta Mandata poster from the police. So if you want details on Da-do-do-do-da-da-da, you can go check out Mile in My Shoes. Les tells Johnny he forgot to introduce the record. Johnny tells him, oh, he'll just back announce it. Let's talk about front announce versus back announce. When Les mentioned Johnny didn't intro the record, this is probably an Andy rule. It was common for AM music stations back when they had live announcers to require front announcements for songs, especially coming out of big breaks. If you just had a news weather traffic block, PDs would encourage talent to get on the mic before going back into the music. Otherwise, you could go eight or ten minutes without hearing from the host of the show. For ratings purposes, it was important to remind the listener about the call letters and the frequency. Radio is rated in 15-minute blocks. Getting a call letter or a slogan mention in at least once every quarter hour was a must. On AM stations, front announce was king. This practice of doing front announcements is where hitting the post of a song comes from. Hitting the post is when a DJ talks up the intro to a song and finishes whatever they're saying just as the lyrics begin. To some, it's a lost art. To others, it was an annoying part of AM radio. Over on FM, the tendency was toward back announcing after playing long sweeps of music. FM programmers figured people were tired of not hearing song intros because AM DJs always talked over them. Yeah, baby. It was more common for FM DJs to play the start of a song with no intro, then back announce, telling you what you just heard. Johnny is excited. He tells Les to sit down so he can tell him what happened last night. You're hip to uh, Riptide and the costumes and the hype and everything, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Last night... I'm sitting around the pad, you know, not doing much of anything. I'm just... Me too. Not... Hmm? Well, that's what I was doing last night also. Oh, so I'm not doing much. Actually, I did do some ironing. <laughs> Johnny tells him, eh, that's good. And, and then he continues. He tells us he had the idea to put on one of Riptide's outfits. Oh, this isn't good. And went out and cruised a couple of clubs. He checked out some bars. You should have called me. We'd have fun together. (laughs) Johnny tells Les he sat around thinking about it for maybe an hour, and all of a sudden, the rip in him said, Hey, why not go for it? Grab all you can! Johnny tells Les he did, and it was fantastic. It was free drinks everywhere he went. People were trying to give him things, and... The chicks? Chicks are crawling all over me. I mean, they love the old ripper. They can't get enough of them, you know? Chicks? Yeah. (laughs) Les tells him that's great. Then he asks him to go on. Johnny says it's the end of the story. I enjoyed it. (laughs) Les leaves the studio. I guess Les was expecting more. I I don't don't know. know. But, you know, when Johnny says they were giving me things, you know what I mean? 
I think those things were drug-related. Oh. Yeah, so Johnny turns around to the mic as the police fade. He does the back announce, and then he bridges into the next song. Okay, that was the police. And I love it, I love it, I love it. And here's somebody else I really love, and I know you're going to love him too. It's Mr. Elvis Presley. The song Blue Suede Shoes by Carl Perkins begins playing. Johnny picks up the police album cover, and he sees the cover sitting under it. He gets this terrified expression on his face as he gets back on the mic. Uh. It's not Elvis Presley. Uh, I'm wrong. It's uh, Carl Perkins. Uh, Carl Perkins wrote Blue Suede Shoes, and uh, he recorded it and released it about a month before Elvis's version. Uh, Elvis copied him a lot, and, and you can hear that, or you could hear it if I wasn't talking on top of the record. <laughs> Johnny then touches his throat. You can see he thinks something is wrong, but then he shakes it off. Blue Suede Shoes was the very first hit single written by Carl Perkins, and it would be the biggest thing he would ever write. Perkins wrote and recorded the song in December of 1955 for Sam Phillips' Sun Records. This was after Elvis had already left for RCA, but Elvis was a friend of Perkins. Perkins' version was released... In January of 1956, it became a regional hit in various areas of the country. DJ Bill Randall in Cleveland was playing it nightly. Sun Records shipped another 25,000 copies to Cleveland to meet demand. In early March, Perkins' recording debuted on the Hot 100. It would climb to number two on the chart. It was unable to unseat the number one spot held by Elvis and Heartbreak Hotel. On March 22nd of 56, while heading for a TV appearance in New York, Perkins and his band were in a serious automobile accident. Perkins was laid up in the hospital. According to Scotty Moore, Elvis laid down his version in late January of 56. So, as Johnny said, it was about a month after Perkins' version. Moore said Elvis only agreed to record the song as a tribute to Perkins and to help him out as a songwriter. After Perkins' accident, Presley did a very cool thing. He requested his version of the song be delayed as a single. He didn't want to steal Carl's heat while he was still on the charts. Although it had been out on the album and released as part of an EP, Elvis's single of Blue Suede Shoes would not be released until September of 1956, about nine months after Carl's. Elvis's version would only hit number 20 on the Hot 100, where Perkins' version had peaked at number two. It was not unusual for another singer to cover a song, especially at this time. The music industry of the 50s was before the era of the singer-songwriter. The songs existed separately from the singers. When a good song came along, several different artists would record it, usually in various styles. It was also very common for Elvis to record other people's songs. The King recorded more than 600 songs over the course of his career, and he did not write a single one of them. Well, it's one for the money. We come back to Mr. Carlson's office. Mr. Carlson is sitting at his desk. Andy is sitting in a chair, and Les is on the couch. Herb is pacing back and forth. I've been talking to you guys about this for two days. Why won't you listen to me? Why won't anybody listen to me? Five reasons, Herb. Look, big guy. (laughs) 
Herb goes over to Mr. Carlson's <laughs> desk, and he leans down to look Carlson in the face. He's already doing Rip on the air. Haven't you heard him lately? I mean, every once in a while, Rip will slip out instead of Johnny. He's taking him over. I love how he had those five reasons loaded up and ready to go. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and would you look at Herb? I believe it's, it's time. time. Herb Darling, fashion alert. It's a new day, so we have another fashion alert. This suit looks like the green one Herb had on the day before, but this time it's brown. It has shiny pants, a shiny vest, and a shiny jacket with white buttons and white stitching around the edge, just like the green suit had. You know, when you find a suit you like, you like the style, you like the way it fits, you get it in multiple colors. I understand that. So Andy tells her, that's nonsense. Andy tells him all Johnny has, two jobs, and sure, maybe it gets a little confusing. I would have to agree with Herb at this point. Herb tells Les to not agree with him, and he asks Les why he's even in there. Les says he's been keeping a close eye on Dr. Fever lately. And I happen to be something of an expert on schizophrenia. Les gets all Bond villainish when he knows something. Mr. Carlson puts his head in his hand and Herb rolls his eyes. May I tell you something about it? No. Les then goes on to define a schizoid disorder and then asks who saw Joanne Woodward in The Three Faces of Eve. Andy and Mr. Carlson raise their hands. Well, she got all better, but then Sally Field got it in Sybil. <laughs> How many saw that film? <laughs> oh, she got all better. <laughs> and then Sally Field got yeah, it. Like, it's like it was catching. It's the yes. flu. So let's talk for a minute about schizophrenia versus schizoid disorder. We uh, we hate to call into question the expertise of Mr. Nesman, but man, he is all over the map on this one. Schizophrenia is a mental disorder characterized by hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, and confused thinking. Schizophrenics experience bouts of psychosis. Now, although sitcoms have been telling us differently for decades, schizophrenia does not include multiple personalities. Les also mentioned schizoid disorder. Although it sounds like it would be related to schizophrenia, schizoid disorder is actually an entirely separate condition. Schizoid disorder is part of a group of disorders called eccentric personality disorders. Schizoid personality disorder is characterized by social isolation and a lack of close relationships. Those with schizoid disorder have trouble accepting either praise or criticism. They tend to choose solitary jobs like night security guard, library, or lab worker. Patients suffering from schizoid disorder can function normally in society, although they are generally perceived as odd or different. Schizoid personality disorder is rarely treated because those who have it don't realize they have it and they don't seek help. When Les mentions the three faces of Eve and Sybil, he's referring to patients who suffered from what used to be known as multiple personality disorder, or MPD. In recent years, it's been renamed the more accurate dissociative identity disorder, or DID. DID patients exhibit at least two distinct and enduring personality states. The primary personality is usually not aware when other personalities are in control of the host body. Sufferers of DID report memory gaps and disorientation. Usually, DID is the result of severe childhood abuse or significant trauma. DID is extremely rare. It's also difficult to diagnose. It's so rare and hard to identify, some psychiatric professionals don't even believe it exists. 
Both Eve and Sybil were movies based on extreme but well-documented cases of DID. Mr. Carlson asks Les if he can interrupt him for a second. This may be a different thought altogether, but why can't you guys get out of my office? (laughs) (laughs) Herb tells Mr. Carlson they have to get Rip on the air at WKRP. He tells Mr. Carlson they'll make millions. Can I get back to the subject at hand? If the guy is turning into another person, so be it. I say let's help him. Les tells them all he really believes Johnny has a problem. You know he started going out at night in his rip costume? Andy seems concerned about this. Really? Les tells them yes. He also tells them he's starting to refer to Johnny in the third person as if he were somebody else altogether. Andy tells Les he'll probably snap out of it. Or get worse, he could develop more personalities. Good, maybe we'll find one that plays when he's supposed to. (laughs) find one that plays what he's supposed to. (laughs) Les tells him he thinks they should try to help Johnny. Mr. Carlson asks him how. Well, Les suggests that shock has been known to work. Shock? Are you not electrical shock? No, I mean shock like, ha! Les yells right in Andy's face. Andy's head jerks up and his eyes are wide open. He's staring straight ahead with his mouth slightly open. Les tells him, it would be a surprise, a, a realization. Once again, Les is way off with his facts. He needs to stick to news and stay away from psychiatry. <laughs> Dissociative identity disorder, when it is identified, is treated through counseling and therapy. We couldn't find any reference to shock therapy as a treatment for DID, electric or otherwise. Herb walks over to Andy. Do you see what I'm trying to say, Andy? Andy tells Herb, yes, he does. He then goes on to say he doesn't think there's anything wrong with Johnny. Johnny has played a lot of different characters on the air. Johnny Fever, Johnny Duke, Johnny Style, Johnny Sunshine, Riptide. It's just an on-the-air persona. We can sell out his time at double the rate. You're right, Herb. <laughs> well, this is a shock to Carlson. Wait, wait. Herb's right? Andy nods his head. <laughs> I'll be done. <laughs> Herb opens the door to Carlson's office. I'll go get him. Fever and I have never really been close, but... Uh, Rip and I have become pretty good friends. So first of all, Herb is shocked that he had a good idea, too. Yeah. But the the fact that Herb noticed this in Dr. Fever, the, the two-personality thing, I thought that was pretty uh, perceptive on Herb's part. Well, I just think it's Herb is attracted to the sleazeball nature of Rip. Well, that's true. <laughs> they get along well together, he it, and Rip. It speaks to something in Herb's <laughs> nature, the, the ripness of Johnny. Herb's right. So we head over to the bullpen. It's a cut to continuity. Johnny's sitting in the bullpen at the DJ's desk. He's watching the small TV, and he's smiling. Rip Tide is on the TV doing show promos. Don't forget, Tubeheads, right after my show, it's Hogan's Heroes. You remember what a ball World War II was. Herb enters, and he bends down next to Johnny. Herb elbows Johnny. Oh, hey, that's you. Yeah. Johnny tells Herb Rip is doing all the station's promos now. Then get ready for the most intellectually stimulating half hour on television. Let's make a deal. That's right. It's all happening right now. How about that? Fun channel. I mean, you're there and you're here. Yeah, it's called videotape, Herb. Seven days a week. There's a lot going on in Rip's promo. The first thing he mentioned was the syndicated Hogan's Heroes coming on right after Gotta Dance. 
Hogan's Heroes was an American television sitcom starring Bob Crane as the title character. It aired from 1965 until 1971 on CBS. Hogan's Heroes was about a group of POWs being held in a Nazi prisoner of war camp during World War II. The slick and clever Colonel Robert Hogan really ran the camp even though he was a prisoner. The Nazis in charge were bungling buffoons. Interesting to note, the four main Nazi characters in Hogan's Heroes were all played by Jewish actors. Three of the four had actually escaped Hitler's Germany, and they lost family members to the concentration camps. Werner Klimperer, who played camp commander Colonel Wilhelm Klink, had one stipulation in his contract, no matter what, Hogan would always win. Clink and his associates would always be made to look the fool. Rip then promos the Channel 11 news team. Sounds like God Dance is... Got Dance? Got Dance. It sounds like Got a Dance is running on a fictional station. WHAS was an area CBS affiliate at the time, and they were on Channel 11, but they were out of Louisville, Kentucky, about 90 miles away. WHAS is now an ABC affiliate, and it does show up in current listings for Cincinnati as Channel 11, but it wouldn't have served Cincinnati at the time. In the early 1980s, WKRC on Channel 12 was the CBS affiliate in Cincinnati. We couldn't find a Cincy station on Channel 11. And finally, the old ripper takes a shot at Let's Make a Deal. These people, dressed as they are, come from all over the United States to make deals here in the marketplace of America. Let's make a deal. And now, here's America's top trader, TV's big dealer, Monty Hall. Let's Make a Deal, or LMAD, was an American musical comedy variety game show created in 1963 by Stephen Hatos and Monty Hall. Hall would serve as host for nearly 30 years. Let's Make a Deal encourages audience members to dress up in crazy costumes and go nuts trying to get the host's attention. Selected contestants try to guess the location of valuable prizes, sometimes behind doors, on the stage, other times in boxes on tables in front of them. Now, Cheryl and Ron, uh, I am going to have you look for a buck's worth of merchandise. And if you can find it for me, why, I'll let you trade it in for this very beautiful automobile. Sporty car. Pontiac's Grand Am, foreign intrigue, Yankee ingenuity. Style, prestige, quick handling, a true road car from Pontiac, of course. And it's held for $4,343.50. But... We're adding tax and license, air conditioning, and more extras so that it's worth $5,639.48. Incredibly, Let's Make a Deal is still on the air. The current version is produced by CBS for syndication and is hosted by comedian Wayne Brady. Herb says Mr. Carlson and Andy were wondering if they could meet with The Ripper in Mr. Carlson's office. Johnny gets up from the DJ's desk. As he starts to walk out, he puts his arm around Herb. Listen, Herb, stay close to me. It'll do you a lot of good, you know what I mean? I know what you mean. (laughs) I've been wondering, if we put some money into a contract... That is not Johnny behavior. Herb and Johnny walk out of the bullpen together. Now we see Herb and Johnny enter Mr. Carlson's office. They're laughing. Here he is, the old ripper. Mr. Carlson tells Johnny to come on in. 
Johnny sits on the couch while Herb runs over to get him a cup of coffee. He asks Johnny how he takes it. Uh, black, please. You got it. Mr. Carlson asks if Johnny's comfortable. Yes, sir. How about you? Herb brings Johnny his coffee. Here you go. Uh, no, thanks. <laughs> Johnny waves Herb away. <laughs> Andy comes over to Johnny. This riptide thing, it's uh, pretty phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is, Andy. Really surprised me. Andy starts to tell Johnny the reason they've asked him into Carlson's office. Herb takes a big swallow of coffee from the cup he just poured for Johnny, not realizing how hot it is. <laughs> and there's nothing in that cup, but Herb's doing great. His face, oh, it's in pain. Doing, doing great prop work there. <laughs> So Herb is fanning his hand in front of his face. Andy tells Johnny Herb wants to talk to him. Herb sits down beside Johnny, still trying to recuperate from the scalding hot coffee burning his mouth and tongue. John, we've got a great idea and you're going to love it. And, and you'll be doing the station a great favor. Herb goes on to explain they want Riptide to come work for WKRP. Herb asks Johnny what he thinks. Well, Johnny says he doesn't like it. Why? I, I don't want him up here. Herb chuckles and asks Johnny what he's talking about. Guy is a creep, Herb. Okay, Johnny's freaking us out now. Herb tells Johnny he is tied. Johnny says, no, he's not. Well, then who is he? But he's a TV guy. And he tells Johnny they could use Riptide at the station. Doing what? Herb suggests the morning drive time. That's Fever's slot. To hell with him! Uh oh. What? Johnny doesn't like this. He grabs Herb by his jacket lapel. Herb apologizes, saying he, he forgot who he was talking to. This is where Andy now cuts back in. Well, Andy tells Johnny he doesn't want to replace Johnny. I was suggesting maybe like a, like a, a one man team. You know, uh, yeah, you and the rip. Johnny tells Andy he works alone. Yeah, but you would be working alone, John. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. It'd, it'd be, you know, he and the rip. He is the rip. Oh, yeah, sorry. Continue. Now, there are probably more out there, but I am very aware of one of the most successful one-man duos in U.S. radio. I was a big fan. It was Kevin Matthews on The Loop in Chicago in the 1980s and 90s. Kevin created a fictional co-host, a sports guy named Jim Shorts. Jim had his own voice, attitude, and opinions. He was a lousy sports guy, but he was hilarious as a co-host. I'm a little. I don't mind today. doing this. On, I don't mind doing Jack, this. Jack, you talk into the mic. Into the microphone, Marconi. <laughs> I'm a little nervous today, Shorts, because based on the way you're taking his place into the crapper. Oh, am I really? Am you know, I really? Have you ever heard your show? Yeah, you just see the cube at twelve thirty. <laughs> anyway, right. the point but being, I, I know Jack. I, oh, okay. she's got a lot of tags. Right, Jack, let's do right. something. Hits and bets. Matthews was adamant about treating Jim as a separate and very real character. Matthews would even appear as Jim at Chicago sporting events. He had an outfit that he put on to look like him. Jim Shorts even hosted his own television show on Chicago's Sports Channel America affiliate. And you called into Jim Shorts I once, called didn't in you? The, Ke the Kevin. I was a Kev head, so I called into the Kevin Matthews show, and I talked to both Kevin and Jim. They were both there at the they time. They were there at the same okay. time. Johnny tells them all they don't understand. Riptide is difficult to be around. Herb says he likes him. 
Johnny tells Herb Rip's a jerk. He doesn't like my apartment. He doesn't like the food I serve him. He doesn't like the way I live, you know? <laughs> Johnny's pacing back and forth as he talks. I'll tell you what he does like, though. He likes young girls. I mean, really young girls. Oh, that's not good. At this, Andy gives a concerned glance over toward Mr. Carlson and Herb. I- I've tried to talk to him about this, but he just won't listen. And you know why? Because the guy is no good. And as a jock, he's a rank amateur. He can barely tell the difference between Carl Perkins and Elvis Presley. And I'll tell you something else, too. I don't like talking about the guy behind his back. You understand? <laughs> okay, I got to jump in here. We've been throwing around the name Riptide for a while now without mentioning what a riptide is. A riptide is a strong offshore current caused by the ebbing tide pulling water through an inlet or a barrier beach. Riptides can be very dangerous. Some have been known to carry swimmers as far as 300 meters out to sea. Herb, Mr. Carlson, and Andy all look at Johnny, not quite knowing how to respond. Andy's the first to speak. Johnny? Yeah. Andy puts his hand on Johnny's shoulder. That's okay, man. You know, it's bad. Bad ideas here all the way around, right? Andy smiles, his hand still on Johnny's shoulder. Uh, Just forget about the whole thing. Okay. Johnny nods his head, saying, okay. Andy tells Johnny it was the program director in him talking. It, It wasn't him. Herb comes up with a very concerned look on his face. Same here. Uh, It wasn't Herb talking, it was the sales manager. Then Art steps up next to Herb. Yeah, well, uh, I guess all all eight of us are in agreement. (laughs) Really sorry about that, Doctor. Johnny looks at all of them warily, and he makes his way to the door. Johnny looks confused. He opens the door, then he looks back at Carlson, Herb, and Andy, just with this strange look on his face as he walks out and closes the door. Now we're in the lobby where Jennifer's at her desk, and she sees Johnny coming out of Mr. Carlson's office. Johnny closes the door, and he's staring at it. What happened, Johnny? Johnny looks a bit shaken. Those guys are really confused. (laughs) Tried to fire me. Why? I don't know. They think Riptide would be a real ratings booster, you know? Bring in a lot of new listeners. Of course, it would change the complexion of the station. Completely. Johnny slips into Rip as he goes on a tangent. But, I mean, they'd have to live with the fact that the only reason anybody's tuning into this jive station is to dig the old Ripper. And he'd love it. He would, too. And you would, too. You'd be with me all the way to the top, baby. We'd have a different colored mink coat for you for every day of the week. Now, what do you say, hmm? No. No? No. No? <laughs> I know what you're doing. You're just toying with me. It's all right. I'm used to it. I can take it, and I can dish it out. I like your style, Jennifer. I do. I'm crazy about you, baby. Yum, yum, yum. (laughs) Jennifer's looking at Johnny with concern. Jennifer tells Rip she really doesn't like him. Hey, it's really just me, you know. We all have a lot of different faces, and I just found this schlemiel inside who's really fighting to get out, that's all. Rip? Yeah, I mean, it's just a constant battle for control, you know. It just goes back and forth and back and forth and back. Yeah, you know him. Suddenly, Jennifer stands up and, and looks at Johnny. Stop it, John. Just stop it. Jennifer walks out of the lobby through the door leading to the bullpen. Okay. I'll give it a try. 
Not easy. Working in close quarters. Johnny used the word schlemiel. A schlemiel is an awkward and unlucky person. Things usually never turn out right for a schlemiel. It's a Yiddish word taken from Hebrew. It was first used somewhere between 1890 and 1895. Bailey and Venus enter the lobby coming in from the outside hallway. Johnny turns to face them. Now let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is a symphony in blue in his robin egg blue pants with a collared shirt of the same color, unbuttoned to mid-chest. The shirt seems to have a design on it. The collar of his shirt is out over the lapel of a blue-gray jacket. He's wearing shiny brown penny loafers. They both say hi to Johnny, but you can see they feel very uncomfortable. They go through the door leading to the bullpen. Johnny is left alone in the lobby, struggling with his thoughts. We transition to the Gotta Dance set, and we hear the show's theme music as the announcer introduces Riptide. Now, Cincinnati, it's time to get down again with the man who makes us all want to dance, the boss of the beat, Mr. Riptide! Rip comes onto the stage dressed in an all-white shiny pants and jacket combo with a low-cut silver sequined tank top <laughs> underneath. He's also wearing a shiny white cap. Hey, 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 yes, it's all right. It's time to shake the moss off your feet and move to the beat. Rip starts the song Strut Your Stuff by the Stone City Band. The kids are all dancing and having fun. The Stone City Band was formed in 1978 by Rick James. Sometimes you'll see them listed as Rick James Presents the Stone City Band. For the most part, the Stone City Band was James' backing band when he would tour or record. They played on Rick James' hits like Super Freak and Bustin' Out. They also provided studio backing for hits by MC Hammer, Mary Jane Girls, Tina Marie, The Temptations, Eddie Murphy, Smokey Robinson, and many more. Although the Stone City Band had their greatest success as a studio band, they did release their own stuff on Motown's Gordy label. This single is from their 1980 album, In and Out. Even though you've probably heard them on other performers' hits, the Stone City Band was never able to score a charted hit of their own. Suddenly, Rip puts his hand on the turntable, causing it to stop. I'm awfully sorry about this, boys and girls, but the old Ripper just looked at his little ledger here, and this record does not have what it takes to be played on the show, okay? Avis is standing off to the side in the wings, and you can see she is not happy. You all know that a record's gotta have three things for me to put it on a turntable, huh? It's gotta have a beat, right? Right! And it's gotta have soul, right? Right! It's got to be paid for, right? Mm, The crowd of kids is stumped. They're all asking what and and looking around. So if any of you want to get in the record business, you just slip the old rip, a cashier's check in his pocket, and guess what? We're in business, okay? 
Wake up, boys and girls. You don't think the old Ripper plays this because he likes it, do you? Rip is admitting to taking payola for playing the songs on Gotta Dance. We mentioned payola during the season one episode, Johnny Comes Back, but we didn't get into it. Ola was a common suffix used by early audio components, Victrola, Motorola, but the term payola is probably a joke tied to the Rockola jukeboxes from the 1950s. The jukeboxes were pay-to-play, just like the DJs. The first congressional payola hearings were held in 1959, after it was discovered that some DJs in major markets were reported to be taking in excess of $20,000 each to play certain songs. The practice of payola was slowed by the investigations, but was not stopped. There was a big resurgence in payola in the 1970s, only instead of cash, a lot of the late 70s payoffs were coming in the form of hookers and drugs. Rip looks at a girl in the group and asks her if she really likes droid synth music better than real live rock and roll. Well, she tells him she doesn't know. Of course you don't, you poor deprived dear. Rip then tells the girl to come to the Ripper's dressing room after the show. They'll see if he can show her the light. He gets disapproving sounds from the group of teens. Just kidding, just kidding. Maybe. Rip winks at them. Oh, Rip is sleazy. A voice from the crowd tells him to shut up and play the village people. Jam it, pizza face. (laughs) The kid asks if he wants to make something out of it. Look, kid, around here I crack the whip, you make the trip, okay? Hey, let's talk for a minute about our dancing extras. There are a bunch of kids in the dance scenes, but we don't get a credit for any of them. We did find one male dancer who has listed himself as uncredited in this scene. His name is Stan Rodarte. Stan was born in Orange, California in 1954. He has 128 acting credits on his IMDb profile, and most of those are as an uncredited dancer. He appeared in a number of shows throughout the 80s and 90s as a dancer. Stan also lists about two dozen additional credits where he has worked as a choreographer. Well, Johnny is pulling out all of the stops tonight, showing off Rip's worst attributes. He tells them it's called Gotta Dance, so they gotta dance. Boys dance with boys, girls dance with girls. How about it, huh? Rip's a bit of a perv. He says when they grow up, they'll understand there comes a time when you've gotta dance. But uh, nobody says you can't pick good music. Johnny starts the song Ready Teddy by Little Richard. The kids all start to dance. Johnny puts the mic down and puts on his sunglasses. He looks off stage where Avis is standing. She is visibly angry at him. Johnny blows her a kiss, looks once more out over the kids dancing to Little Richard, then walks off the stage. So he's going to be fired, so that gets him out of the contract. I think so, yeah. Johnny played Ready Teddy by Little Richard. Ready Teddy was written by John Mariscalso and Robert Blackwell. It was the flip side to Little Richard's 1956 hit, Rip It Up. This was back in the days when an artist could have a double-sided hit. Rankings at the time were determined based on a mix of sales, airplay, jukebox plays, and requests at radio stations. Rip It Up was a number 17 hit, where Ready Teddy only went to 44. Going to the corner, pick up my sweetie pie, she's the rock and roll, baby, she's the apple of my baby. Rock and 
Ready Teddy was covered by Buddy Holly, Tony Sheridan, Elvis, and others. Elvis Presley sang Ready Teddy in front of an estimated 60 million viewers during his first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, September 9th of 1956. The appearance garnered an 82.6% share of viewers. That is still the largest share ever recorded in the history of U.S. television. Everybody wanted to see those hips. Had to see Elvis. Now we're in Johnny's dressing room. Johnny is putting his street clothes back on. There's a knock on the door and Avis comes walking in. Well, I assume I'm no longer under contract. (laughs) No problem. Great. I hope we can be friends. Avis asks if she can say something. Johnny tells her, sure. I never want to see you again. Johnny asks her if that's all. That's all. Avis goes out the door and slams it loudly. Johnny picks up a bottle of liquor as if he were going to take a drink. Then he puts it back on the shelf. He picks up his bag that is open and you see an idea come over him. He begins filling the bag with the bottles of liquor from the bar in his dressing room. He looks at his reflection in the mirror blows himself a kiss, and leaves, closing the door behind him. And we get a little bit more of Ready Teddy before we go into our usual went-to-a-bartender-closing song. And that is going to do it for the hour-long Dr. Fever and Mr. Tide. I just love that episode. So much fun, and I think most of it is just because of Howard Hessman. He had so much fun digging into that Rip character. So, Donna, what is up for next week? Next week, we'll be discussing Ask Jennifer. Herb comes up with a great idea, a call-in advice show. Herb finds the host, but she turns out to be a flake. At the last minute, Jennifer steps in to field the calls. She's a hit. Although she'd rather not, Jennifer continues to host the show until another replacement can be found. After her advice causes a caller to be hurt... Jennifer quits and Mr. Carlson steps in. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Find us on social media. You can follow our Facebook page at WKRP cast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPcast for behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, wkrpcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye, y'all. May the good news be yours. WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!